0: that was our whole goal. If someone's injured, man, I'm not, I'm not going to cut them open out there. I'm not a surgeon. I can only do what we can consider damage control resuscitation.
1: You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, and welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. War has changed, and battlefield medicine is still catching up. Upwards of 25% of deaths in Vietnam were preventable with the right pre-hospital care. Unfortunately, not much has changed during the early years of the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan. Andrew Fisher is a highly decorated physician assistant in the U.S. Army. As a PA... For the 75th Ranger Regiment, he saw combat firsthand in Afghanistan and knows better than most what bullets and bombs can do to the human body. He's here with us today to talk about battlefield medicine and the little-understood importance of the tourniquet. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Uh, Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Happy to be here.
1: So first off, I want to ask, were you drawn to battlefield medicine, or do you think it kind of picked you?
0: I think it um, kind of picked me. I certainly didn't initially envision myself heading down this path. I had enlisted in the uh, early 90s as an infantryman and was then assigned to the 75th Ranger Regiment uh, once I passed the selection process. And uh, by chance, I just happened to be sent to an EMT course. And it was there, I kind of found my my desire to work in medicine. So I feel like It kind of came to me uh, versus me kind of seeking it out. Uh, You know, I was just kind of fortunate that at that time we were uh, training. We'd take infantrymen in the 75th range regiment. We send them to an EMT school or EMT course, and they would then come back, and they would be able to assist the medic, the platoon medic, company medic, or whatever, uh, with battlefield casualties. And it was kind of ahead of the time, you know, kind of ahead of, of where we are um from what we've been doing now what the conventional forces do and utilizing the infantrymen uh, as kinda like that that first line provider uh versus versus what we uh, kind of see in the conventional forces at that time. Of course I think they are trying. the conventional forces are trying to catch up now and uh do some similar training on uh within some units. So Kind of drawing out the uh, story there, but uh, yeah, I kind of felt uh, that was my path to medicine.
1: Can you elaborate a little bit on the differences between what you were doing then and what the the normal infantry were doing at the time?
0: Well, the like I mentioned, so we would send uh, the seventy fifth regiment would send one person per squad to an EMT course, with the goals of coming back and and being able to assist the the platoon medic. With ever uh, whatever roles or tasks that need to be done in the pre-hospital phase of of uh, combat casualty care, uh, and and we're obviously the EMT training at that time, and it still is based on a a civilian model of medicine, which isn't necessarily applicable to what happens in the pre-hospital phase of combat medicine, uh, but it still kind of gave us the uh, a little bit of medical knowledge and a little bit of understanding of what needed to happen in order to care for casualties so we were able to kind of follow some of the base, basic uh, direction that the uh, that the combat uh, or the, the platoon medic gave us um, but um, we weren't you know that full spectrum combat medic like uh, as they kind of filled that role Uh, The conventional forces at the time uh, did have a combat lifesaver program, which is still uh, being used today. And essentially that is a 40-hour block of instruction where they're kind of taught uh, back in those days, kind of a condensed version of maybe an EMT class. So it's a very, very uh, brief overview of kind of just basic first aid care. And back in those days before we were, The, uh, you know, before tactical combat casualty care came in, it was more about, uh, hey, let's start some big IVs and, uh, you know, let's, um, you know, maybe put some, you can put a chest seal on, maybe we're going to do needle decompression, Um, but it uh, it wasn't necessarily about, you know, uh, identifying and treating life-threatening hemorrhage. As we do in tactical combat casual care, and like I said, the, the EMT course I went to wasn't necessarily focused on that either. But certainly, we had more training than some of the conventional forces.
1: So, were you also carrying a gun at the same time?
0: In you know, if you were in combat, were you did you just have a medical bag, or were you also fighting at the same time? So, your role as an EMT uh, within the regiment at that time and still today is is you know, you packed on some extra equipment, and you can, when the medic needed you, you went. Uh, so yeah, I, I still had it was just an extra duty. I'm I'm sure you guys are everyone's kind of familiar in the military about some of the extra duties that everyone has within within maybe within a platoon or a company uh, or even within a squad. Uh, you know, maybe a you know may, maybe you're you know carrying uh, uh, the demo or you know. Uh, whatever whatever else role may be assigned it's just an additional duty that that squad member had uh to carry out uh, and just besides you know the regular duties as infantrymen. so yes i carried i was actually a saw gunner at the time so uh I lugged that around along with some extra medical stuff
1: that's a lot of gear
0: oh man I'll tell you they they didn't make it easy on me that's for sure
1: what what kind of changes have come to battlefield medicine since the opening of the Afghanistan War?
0: Let, let me let me start um, back a little bit, just a few years earlier. That in 1996, um, Dr. Frank Butler and colleagues had had published a supplement in in the Military Medicine Journal, and it was titled "Tactical Combat Casualty Care and Special Operations." And this, uh, this supplement, it was pretty long, substantial supplement. And there, you know, they, they went back and they kind of looked at the, the data from Vietnam. They kind of looked at uh, some previous conflicts, some overall, you know, military deaths, military uh, medical data, and kind of came, um, decided that there were three really big uh, preventable causes of death in, in combat and specifically in the the pre-hospital phase of combat. And and this had already been kind of outlined in some previous studies, um, but it certainly hadn't been updated to kind of reflect what we were doing in the mid-90s. And uh, they they identified that the three leading causes of renal death were massive bleeding from an extremity, um, airway obstruction, and tension pneumothorax. And when I say tension pneumothorax, I mean that you get this Any sort of trauma to your lung that makes it collapse, and you build build up a whole bunch of pressure inside the chest, and you you decrease the amount of blood return to the heart. And and overall, that's what kind of kills you. So, those are the three leading causes of prenatal death. And what he did is he published this, like I said, in, in the Military Medicine Journal. And there wasn't a whole lot of people to kind of picked it up. You saw the 75th Range Regiment pick it up. You saw the SEALs pick it up. You saw some other units in special operations. But overall, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in it. And then um, we get to uh, 9-11, and, and this happens, and we still don't have a whole lot of interest. We did have in 2001 the, de- the development of the Committee for Tactical Combat Casualty Care, but you didn't see at the unit level uh, a whole lot of support for this uh, by conventional forces. And so as we enter into the battles in, you know, or the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we see that uh, we're starting to have casualties. You know, we're starting to see people die, and we're starting to uh, recognize as we look back at some of this autopsy data and, and these uh, preventable death studies that would eventually come out that people were dying from bleeding. And we saw that in, in the early um, in the early GWAT, uh, we saw that even in special operations, there was up to 15% preventable death rate. And we saw within the conventional forces that um, about 25% of the deaths were potentially survivable or preventable. And so that, that kind of spurred some kind of you know interest that hey maybe we can do something about this. And then we had uh, the development of these commercially made tourniquets that really made things a lot easier because before then we saw a lot of improvised tourniquets and even it wasn't really talked about and recommended to use tourniquets a lot. As we saw tourniquets become more available and we saw the, the tactical combat casualty care guidelines kind of be pushed out uh, to the conventional forces. And we, and you saw actually a lot of great success in some of these units that really took it seriously. There was a unit out of third ID on the invasion of um, Iraq that uh, that was noted that they didn't have a single um, uh, preventable death or death from hemorrhage and such because they, they had been using tactical combat casualty care. So we saw the like I said we saw the the kind of implementation of the CAT and soft tea tourniquets and the the tactical combat casualty care guidelines, and we started to see a, a big drop in in uh, death from bleeding. And this was kind of outlined that, hey, tourniquets do save lives. John Craig published this in 2008, 2009. We saw Brian Eastridge publish his stuff in 2011. And that's kind of the big study that people often reference is uh, Colonel Brian Eastridge's data from 2011. Um, but there was still some significant death, but certainly not as much as within the first you know, four to five years of, uh, after
1: 9-11. I mean, so that's really dramatic.
0: So if we, overall, if we look at say before 2006, we saw that uh, overall death from extremity bleeding was uh, 7.8% of all battlefield fatalities. And once we saw that the with the increase in availability of tourniquets, and we saw the implementation of the tactical combat casualty ca- tactical combat casualty care guidelines, that uh, that this death um, from extremity bleeding uh, decreased to 2.6% of all battlefield fatalities. So overall, that's there was a 67% decrease in deaths from um, um, extremity hemorrhage. So that's that's very significant that you know, we were able to kind of get that implemented and we saw that drastic change. It's just unfortunate that it took, uh, an, you know, until about 2006, you know, like I said, four to five years into the conflict before we really started recognizing the fact that, you know, um, using tourniquets and being able to identify and treat life threatening hemorrhage um, was, uh, you know, would have to happen.
1: And you yourself pioneered some life-saving, some new life-saving measures on the battlefield, correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: I was able to kind of help uh, build a program within the Department of Defense that is uh, still becoming uh, more prevalent and has now started to become um, being used within the EMS system here in the United States, and that is the Group O Low Titer Whole Blood Program. Now, What I did with uh, the help of Ethan Miles, uh, the Colonel Andre Cap, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Corley, Colonel Otter uh, Taylor – and uh, Colonel Sean Kane was. We developed a program using some of the programs from around the country, uh, from from different countries, and also looking back to our World War II and Korean War data, to where we said, "Hey, if we can identify all our group O people, our type O blood people, which is roughly about forty to forty-five percent of the United States population, just by you know by statistics, so uh, I can take those people and uh, uh, of everyone that of those." I can then test them for a low amount of antibodies in their blood. And if they have a low amount of antibodies, because we know we can we consider Group O like the universal donor. Well, that usually talks about red blood cells. But if we have whole blood, the plasma has antibodies in it that can sometimes react with the with your patient. So but if we have a low amount of the antibodies, and then I can test them and I can identify those people, then I can have a list with me that says, hey, these are my universal group O low whole blood donors. And so we took this this idea and we we put it into practice. uh, And what happened was we we didn't transfuse any fresh whole blood utilizing this protocol because it sometimes takes a while uh, to kind of draw the whole blood and then administer it. So we we probably had maybe a couple casualties that maybe could have received the fresh whole blood. Uh, they did receive uh, the plasma in the pre-hospital setting, which we've been carrying since 2011. So they didn't, they nothing. There were no bad outcomes or anything, but certainly they they may have benefited from fresh whole blood. Uh, so what we did was said, why can't we just ship the whole blood from the United States over to Afghanistan? So we did. We developed this program where, where we took the whole blood that they drew. They drew all the donations up in Fort Lewis. And then they package it up and they ship it to us overseas, and we are able to carry it on missions with us, uh, just like any other cold blood product. So if when you know when you, you store things like packed red blood cells uh, at a temperature of one to six degrees Celsius, so if I put in a cooler, I can take it on target and I can administer it to the critically uh, wounded casualties. And uh, I did that. Uh, I did transfuse the first unit in uh, March of 2016, and this has become significant. So they have transfused hundreds of units of this whole blood because it's now spread throughout the entire DoD. And we're starting to see on medevac helicopters, we're seeing it in the roll twos and the roll threes and the caches and and the you know these little surgical teams. We see other special operations units doing this. So it's become a very big program within the Department of Defense. And like I said, we now see it within the EMS systems in the United States. So in Houston, there are two ambulance services that are utilizing the same exact um, concept of using this cold-stored, Group O low titer whole blood in the pre-hospital setting. And we also see it in San Antonio within the helicopter service there. So um, it, it is a very um, – I'm very proud to be a part of that uh, development and uh, actually continue to work on, on this uh, – on the program and try to make it better and try to make it uh, where everyone should be able to use this. So there's no reason why the conventional medic shouldn't be carrying whole blood in his aid bag just like I can within the special operations community. There's no reason why this can't be everywhere.
1: Will you tell us what it's like to be a PA on the ground during combat?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, being a PA within the military, you don't usually find yourself, you know, at the point of injury. You don't usually find yourself, you know, carrying you know carrying your weapon, you know, uh, with all your kit on, just next to you know the the regular infantry guy. But we, we say that in the 75th Range Regiment that you are a ranger first and then whatever your job is second, and you're expected to do the same things everyone else does. They also expect you to um, you know be able to perform care at the point of injury – um, and, and be right next there. They have a lot of great trust in, in their PAs. A lot, of course, a lot of great trust in their medics too. Um, but it's just something else. It's just another part of what I think makes the regiment great and have to be part of it. Um, there are other units that do the same thing. Um, so it's we're not the only ones, but I feel that it's not a reg- happen, thing that happens on a regular basis. I, fe- I felt like um, – Having the experience as an infantryman, although I never deployed or went to combat as an infantryman, I felt like I had that um, unique understanding of what I was supposed to do, um, or better yet, what I wasn't supposed to do as a PA. So I knew what the infantryman was probably supposed to do, um, even though it had been many years since I'd been an infantryman. Um, so I knew where I probably shouldn't be, and uh that kind of um, kind of changed over the years as I became more comfortable and worked with different platoons uh, for uh, a s- significant amount of missions. Um, you know, some of the some of the platoons I probably did you know 100 150 missions with them. So I really felt you know uh, close to them and I, I understood their TTPs and how they were going to you know conduct themselves on target. So I would then position myself in in different areas to where I felt like. I would be the most benefit. Uh, be the most benefit, and sometimes that that was kicking indoors doors um, in the lower, you know, lower risk areas. But that would free them up, you know, free the regular infantry guy up to go and you know take care of business where the most high threat was. So, I it was uh, it was a lot of fun to be part of such an organization to where they had trust in me to be able to do things that wouldn't normally be done by IPA. Uh, and I felt comfortable knowing that I sh- this is where I shouldn't go and I shouldn't be doing this, but I know I can do this and I can benefit the platoon and I can benefit the mission by doing this. Uh, and sometimes, you know, yeah, you um, you had to pull the trigger uh, when the time came, but it was it was often rare, uh, but, but it sometimes had to be done. Um, I took care of a lot of guys on target. And, and that's just part of the job. I work with a lot of great medics, and we develop a lot of great uh, programs, a lot of great rapport also to be able to kind of take care of these guys and expedite their care along the way to make sure that they got back. Uh, you know, to the surgeon, because that was our whole goal. If someone's injured, man, I'm not I'm not going to cut them open out there. I'm not a surgeon. I can only do what we can consider damage control resuscitation. So I can only do my best to stop the bleeding and then resuscitate them a little, little bit in order to get them back to that surgeon who's going to end up, you know, providing that definitive care. So it was a great experience. I loved every minute of it. And I'd probably still be doing it if I didn't feel I was so old and uh, kind of, Probably getting a little past my prime out there, um, but it was certainly exhilarating, uh, and and I had a lot of fun doing it. It
1: was almost you participated in if if the information in front of me is correct almost 600 combat missions.
0: Yeah, definitely over 500. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm somewhere between 500 and 600. Yeah. So it again they they really relied on their PAS and and when I was you know in Kandahar. You know there were seven other platoons um, across, you know, three different three different out stations. So three different areas, helicopters would be going out every night. And you know because I, I worked hard, I developed the relationships, and I was shown to be an asset. I believe I felt I was an asset to the platoon. Um, I would I would be um, be put on the manifest to go on the mission often. I was, and I never uh, never took the place of a medic, and I think that's important that, that you know, as a PA, I didn't, take, I didn't take the medic's place. The medic, that was that medic's platoon, and if there was only room for one medic, that meant that the platoon medic went. I was there to augment uh, what the platoon medic did. I was there to augment and benefit the platoon as a whole and make the mission a success. Could you explain the difference uh, just real quick between a medic and a PA? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as as a PA, uh, I went to uh, I went to the military's uh, PA program or a physician assistant, and this that is a the military's program is a bachelor's to master's program, and you know the 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 PA provides about eighty percent of the primary care for the army. Uh, I don't know about the rest of the DOD, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was similar. Um, Every unit has. Or most units have a PA assigned to them, and they're responsible for overall the health and welfare. They're in charge of medical training uh, for the unit. Uh, and, you know, so I'll see patients, you know, in the clinic, I prescribe medications, X-rays, I write consults, uh, and just like you would see your family doctor, um, it's sort of similar. Now, PA does have a physician oversight. Uh, Within the Department of Defense So I had a battalion surgeon If I didn't have a battalion surgeon then I would have uh, In in conventional forces I would have a brigade surgeon uh, A physician who could oversee uh, My practice And ensure that I was doing The right thing Which is I always had a great relationship With the physicians That uh, For for, uh, Who I worked with Um, A combat medic uh, Specifically within The regiment We had the special operations Combat medic And they would go to A school At Fort Bragg Uh, Once they passed our selection process, or first they went to the AIT, which is you know, several weeks long, to where they become an EMT there, and they take some additional training, and then they go through our selection process, and then they would go on to the, the Sockum course. And at the Sockum course, it's about um, depending on what when what when you went, uh, anywhere seven, nine, ten months long, and there they learn you know some advanced anatomy and physiology. They learn a lot of great stuff about trauma care. Uh, and then they go out and they go do clinicals at, uh, at uh, big city EMS systems and these big trauma centers so they can learn to really become experts at trauma care. So the difference is, is uh, you know, as a PA, I'm a, I'm a practicing provider uh, and I do a lot of more if you in the conventional kind of sense, I do more of just taking care of the unit and ensuring that they um, you know stay healthy. Uh, in the deployed setting, I'll do sick call, and sometimes they kind of want these small little uh, outposts where they can kind of take care of people, uh, where the combat medic is the one who is usually going on the missions, you know, there with the boys every day, providing that. Um, that continuity of care. So when they when their boys come up to the sick call and say, Hey, this is my guy. He's got this and this and this going on. So they really provide a lot of great continuity continuity of care beyond just being you know real trauma uh, gurus there at the point of injury.
1: Why don't we pivot and talk about tourniquets? Because that's been that's kind of something that you are now known for. Is you are a big tourniquet advocate. Why and why do you think tourniquets have gotten such a bad rap?
0: So if you look back previous to the the TCCC stuff and the implementation of, of it across the board, for many years they, we were told how tourniquets were bad and tourniquets – You, if you apply a tourniquet, you're going to lose your limb. You shouldn't – you should only apply it as a last resort to be able to control hemorrhage. Uh, and this is a lot of stuff that we do or I should say that we did in medicine was was based upon you know bad studies and um, poorly poorly designed studies and bad anecdotes and and poor observational information and so we we kind of learned that by by using a more what we call evidence-based medicine, to where we kind of look at the data and we kind of we look at the outcomes, whatever our desired outcome of, of the study is, or whatever the desired outcome of, of whatever I'm doing, and I kind of then make uh, scientific conclusions. You would think that would be regularly happen in medicine, but for many years it it wasn't as well designed and and well upheld as as you might think. Uh, so they for many years we've no one used tourniquets. Uh, well, you know, we'll teach you how to use a tourniquet, but you're never gonna apply one. I remember being in a combat license course back in the early nineties and we taught we were taught how to put on a tourniquet. I remember I think even in basic training they taught us how to do the tourniquet. But again, it was don't use it because if you use it you're gonna you're gonna lose your limb. I remember getting out of the army and working as a paramedic saying You'll never use a tourniquet. They're, they're not good. They're not safe. You'll probably lose your limb. You know, you're going to have uh, ischemia, and you're going you're gonna to have compartment syndrome, uh, and everything is going to have bad outcomes and, and such. Well, we, we found that uh, historically uh, that we used to have them. Uh, but then they kind of fell out of favor. And then we saw that we know we they use tourniquets in orthopedic surgeries, right? So if you go do an ortho, certain orthopedic surgeries, they're going to put like a tourniquet on your arm, and it's going to be up for a long time, like uh, much longer than we would leave a tourniquet on in um, a regular tourniquet. They are slightly different tourniquets, but still, they put on tourniquets in the OR for a long time, and there's no bad outcomes. So – this all goes back again to frank butler's you know papers where he said use a tourniquet in order to control massive hemorrhage. And like we talked about, 7.8% of all battlefield uh, fatalities were due to extremity hemorrhage early in the war. And it was then that we implemented these tourniquets, and I'll tell you a lot of great work from Colonel John Craig, uh, Colonel John Holcomb, and uh, a lot of great people down at the ISR that kind of took all this data um, from the use of tourniquets in Iraq and Afghanistan and kind of said, hey – we can – we actually are saving lives by utilizing these tourniquets. So we know tourniquets, these commercialized tourniquets, are good for two hours, uh, and most people are not uh, – don't have these tourniquets on for nearly that long. Uh, and so what we saw was that uh, was we implemented this program within the DOD. Now we started seeing these big studies happen here in the United States because we've been in war so long, and we have all these great this great data about trauma deaths and, and hemorrhage and all this stuff that a lot of people here in the United States, civilian medicine, started doing the same. And there was a study in 2016 that demonstrated that up to 20% of the trauma deaths in the United States are potentially survivable. Um, if they had you know, the right care, which the right care is optimally going to be aggressive hemorrhage control. So taking the data we know from Iraq and Afghanistan and, and saying, hey, tourniquets are safe, and taking the data from the 2016 study that said that, hey, we got a lot of deaths from bleeding – so we need to utilize, kind of, kind of merge these together, I guess, and say, hey, we need to do the same thing we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and do this and do it here in the United States. Uh, there was a, there's a program called Stop the Bleed, and this is a, a a program, an initiative that was developed to kind of inform and kind of educate and train the bystander uh, to kind of serve as those immediate responders, just like you know the average soldier at the, at the point of injury. Uh, could be able to you know put a tourniquet on their buddy. Now we have you know we're, we're training these people on in an hour to two hours how to identify and then treat you know the those that life threatening hemorrhage. So we teach them hey put it on a tourniquet. We know it's going to be safe for two hours. Uh, and beyond that, so we we also teach them also to you know you can pack a wound with uh, with a hemostatic agent or you know if you don't even ha- if you don't have some sort of fancy you know medical dressing or uh, or gauze and you can use your clothing or you know we teach them how to you know put uh, direct pressure on these wounds in order to control the hemorrhage. So it's it's really applying what we've learned over the years and here in the United States. And really, get trying to get more people involved because still there's a lot of people out there that don't understand uh, how to put on a tourniquet, or not even aware of the programs out there that train people how to put on tourniquets and how to identify the the, the you know massive bleeding and then uh, treat it appropriately. So it's it's a passion because it, I I don't I don't want to see needless deaths in the United States. There's no reason why someone should ever uh, bleed out from an extremity ever, in combat or here in the United States. Uh, if you look at what we did in the regiment where we taught every single person how to identify and treat the three leading causes of preventable death in combat, we have zero preventable deaths. So no one died in the regiment due to what are those three, uh, those three major causes, which again are life-threatening hemorrhage, uh, airway obstruction, and tension in So the DOD may still have some sort of preventable death rate. And, and it's kind of hard to say what it is at this point. Uh, but, you know, we demonstrate that can if you teach everyone, you can eliminate preventable death. So we need to teach everyone, as many people as possible, how to identify and treat that, that life-threatening hemorrhage.
1: Andrew Fisher, I think that's a great place to end on. Thank you so much for coming back on.
0: Yes, thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate it.
1: That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. War College is me, Matthew Gall, and Jason, Jason Fields. Our website is warcollege.co. From there, you can follow us on Twitter at war underscore college and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. Facebook messages typically are the best way to get a hold of us. You can follow us on iTunes. You know, please like and subscribe, it's the best way to get other people to share the show, and if we like your review, we just might read it on the air. So the website is up now, we are still, uh, you know, getting it exactly the way we like it, but it's there, transcripts are coming soon, That's the next thing on on our agenda, and next week, we're going to be bringing you uh, something special from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so don't miss it.